Chapter 7 of Armageddon 2419 A.D. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malcolm Cameron. Armageddon 2419 A.D. by Philip Francis Nolan. Chapter 7. Incredible Treason. After receiving this report and reassurances of supports from the big bosses of the neighboring gangs, Hart determined to reestablish the Wyoming Valley community. A careful survey of the territory showed that it was only the northern sections and slopes that had been beamed by the first Han ship. The synthetic fabrics plant had been partially wiped out, though the lower levels underground had not been reached by the disray. The forest screen above it, however, had been annihilated and it was determined to abandon it, after removing all usable machinery and evidences of the process that might be of interest to the Han scientists should they return to the valley in the future. The ammunition plant and the rocket ship plant, which had just been about to start operation at the time of the raid, were intact, as were the other important plants. Hart brought the cam boss up from Susquehanna Works and laid out new camp locations, scattered them farther to the south, and avoiding ground which had been seared by the Han beams and the immediate locations of the Han wrecks. During this period, a sharp check was kept upon Han messages, for the phone plant had been one of the first to be put in operation, and when it became evident that the Hans did not intend to any immediate reprisals, the entire membership of the community was summoned back, and normal life was resumed. Wilma and I had been married the day after the destruction of the ships, and spent this intervening period in a delightful honeymoon, camping high in the mountains. On our return, we had a camp of our own, of course. We were assigned to location 1017, and as might be expected, we had a great deal of banter over which one of us was camp boss. The title stood after my name on the big boss's records, and those of the big cam boss, of course. But Wilma airily held that this meant nothing at all, and generally succeeded in making me admit it whenever she chose. I found myself a full-fledged member of the gang now, for I had elected to search no farther for a permanent alliance. Much as I would have liked to familiarize myself with this 25th century life in other sections of the country, the Wyomings had a high morale, and had prospered under the rule of Big Boss Hart for many years. But many of the gangs, I found, were badly organized, lacked strong hands in authority, and were rife with intrigue. On the whole, I thought I would be wise to stay with a group which had already proven its friendliness, and in which I seemed to have prospects of advancement. Under these modern social and economic conditions, the kind of individual freedom to which I had been accustomed in the 20th century was impossible. I would have been as much of a non-entity in every phase of human relationship by attempting to avoid alliances as any man of the 20th century would have been politically who aligned himself with no political party. This entire modern life, it appeared to me, judging from my ancient viewpoint, was organized along what I call political lines. And in this connection, it amused me to notice how universal had become the use of the word boss. The leader, 
the person in charge or authority over anything, was a boss. There was as little formality in his relations with his followers as there was in the case of the 20th century political boss, and the same high respect paid him by his followers as well as the same high consideration by him of their interests. He was just as much of an autocrat and just as much dependent on the general popularity of his actions for the ability to maintain his autocracy. The sub-boss who could not command the loyalty of his followers was as quickly deposed, either by them or by his superiors, as the ancient ward leader of the 20th century who lost control of his votes. As society was organized in the 20th century, I do not believe the system could have worked in anything but politics. I tremble to think what would have happened had an attempt been made to handle the AEF this way during the First World War, instead of by that rigid military discipline and complete assumption of the individual as a mere standardized cog in the machine. But owing to the centuries of desperate suffering the people had endured at the hands of the Hans, there developed a spirit of self-sacrifice and consideration for the common good that made the scheme applicable and efficient in all forms of human cooperation. I have a little heresy about this, however. My associates regard the thought with as much horror as many worthy people of the 20th century felt in regard to any heretical suggestion that the original outline of government, as laid down in the first constitution, did not apply as well to the 20th century conditions as to those of the early 19th. In later years, I felt that there was a certain softening of moral fiber among the people, since the Hans had been finally destroyed with all their works, and Americans had developed a new luxury economy. I had seen signs of the reawakening of greed, of selfishness. The eternal cycle seems to be at work. I fear that slowly, though surely, private wealth is reappearing. Codes of inflexibility are developing. They will be followed by corruption, degradation, and in the end, some cataclysmic event will end this error and usher in a new one. All this, however, is wandering afar from my story, which concerns our early battles against the Hans, and not our more modern problems of self-control. Our victory over the seven Han ships had set the country ablaze. The secret had been carefully communicated to the other gangs, and the country was agog from one end to the other. There was feverish activity in the ammunition plants, and the hunting of stray Han ships became an enthusiastic sport. The results were disastrous to our hereditary enemies. From the Pacific coast came the report of a great trans-Pacific liner of 75,000 tons lift, being brought to earth from a position of invisibility above the clouds. A dozen Sacramentos had caught the hazy outlines of its rep rays approaching them, head-on, in the twilight, like ghostly pillars reaching into the sky. They had fired rockets into it with ease, whereas they would have had difficulty in hitting it if it had been moving at right angles to their position. They got one rep ray. The other was not strong enough to hold it up, it floated to earth, nose down, and since it was unarmed and unarmored, 
they had no difficulty in shooting it to pieces and massacring its crew and passengers. It seemed barbarous to me, but then I did not have centuries of bitter persecution in my blood. From the Jersey beaches, we received news of the destruction of a New York Alana liner. The sand snipers, practically invisible in their sand-colored clothing and half-buried along the beaches, lay in wait for days, risking the play of disc beams along the route, and finally registering four hits within a week. The Hans discontinued their service along this route, and as evidence that they were badly shaken by our success, sent no raiders to the beaches. It was a few weeks later that Boss Hart sent for me. Tony, he said, there are two things I want to talk to you about. One of them will become public property in a few days, I think. We aren't going to get any more Han ships by shooting up their repeller rays unless we use much larger rockets. They are wise to us now. They're putting armor of great thickness in the hulls of their ships below the rep ray machines. Near Bafflo this morning, a party of Eries shot one without success. Explosions staggered her, but did not penetrate. As near as we can gather from their reports, their laboratories have developed a new alloy of great tensile strength and elasticity, which nevertheless lets the rep rays through like a sieve. Our reports indicate that the Eries rockets bounced off harmlessly. Most of the party was wiped out as the disrays went into action on them. This is going to mean real business for all of the gangs before long. The big bosses have just held a national ultraphone council. It was decided that America must organize on a national basis. The first move is to develop sectional organization by zones. I have been made super boss of the mid-Atlantic zone. We're in for it now. The hands are sure to launch reprisal expeditions. If we're to save the race, we must keep them away from our camps and plants. I'm thinking of developing a permanent field force along the lines of the regular armies of the 20th century you told me about. Its business will be twofold, to carry the warfare as much as possible to the Hans and to serve as a decoy to keep their attention from our plants. I'm going to need your help on this. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is this. Amazing and impossible as it seems, there is a group, or perhaps an entire gang, somewhere among us, that is betraying us to the Hans. It may be the Bad Bloods, or it may be one of those gangs who live near one of the Han cities. You know, 115 or 20 years ago, there were certain of these people's ancestors who actually degraded themselves by mating with the Hans, sometimes even serving them as slaves in the days before they brought all their service machinery to perfection. There is such a gang called the Nagras up near Bafflo, and another in mid-Jersey that men call the Pineys. But I hardly suspect the Pineys. There is little intelligence among them. They wouldn't have the information to give the Hans, nor would they be capable of imparting it. They're absolute savages. Just what evidence is there that anybody has been clearing information to the Hans? I asked. Well, he replied, first of all, there was that raid upon us. That first Han ship knew the location of our plants exactly. 
You remember. It floated directly into position above the valley and began a systematic beaming. Then, the Hans quite obviously have learned that we are picking up their electrophone waves, for they've gone back to their old, but extremely accurate, system of directional control. But we've been getting them for the past week by installing automatic rebroadcast units along the scar paths. This is what the Americans called those strips of country directly under the regular ship routes of the Hans, who as a matter of precaution frequently blasted them with their disc beams to prevent growth of foliage which might give shelter to the Americans. But they've been beaming those paths so hard, it looks as though they even had information of this strategy. And in addition, they've been using code. Finally, We've picked up three of their messages in which they discuss with some nervousness the existence of our mysterious ultraphone. But they still have no knowledge of the nature and control of ultronic activity, I asked. No, said the big boss thoughtfully. They don't seem to have a bit of information about it. Then it's quite clear, I ventured, that whoever is clearing us to them is doing it piecemeal. It sounds like a bit of occasional barter rather than an out-and-out -out alliance. They're holding back as much information as possible for future bartering, perhaps. Yes, Hart said. And it isn't information that Hans are giving in return, but some form of goods or privilege. The trick would be to locate the goods. I guess I'll have to make a personal trip around among the big bosses. End of chapter 7 Recorded by Malcolm Cameron